0: Welcome to Commission Ed, the Air Force officer podcast. Here, we explore the training and development of America's leaders in the application of air power and the profession of arms. The views expressed are those of the hosts and do not reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, Department of Defense, or the US government.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. I'm Colin Slade.
2: And I'm Reid Gann, and we're your hosts for Commission Ed.
1: Today we are going to bring you an interview with Captain Matt Folks. Matt and I were cadets together at Brigham Young University, and he reached out to me, wanted to provide some expertise from his time in the Air Force. I want to highlight here that this is an interview of a career field that we've already touched on before the 13 s space operations. But this time, it's from a very different perspective, where a few months ago, we interviewed Captain CJ Carlisle, and he talked to you know satellite control that kind of stuff. But in this interview, as you'll hear very shortly, we're going to focus the, the majority of our time on spacelift and the actual instruction of new space operations officers.
2: Yeah. And as we're transitioning from a single service in the United States Air Force to two services with the Space Force, you can see a little bit about where the genesis of that idea may have come from, right? When you've got a single career field, 13 Sierra, that does such vastly different things, you can kind of see how there might be some benefit to breaking those out into more separate fields so they can develop those expertise. Yeah, really interesting stuff. Being stationed at Forty Fifth Space Wing, there at Patrick Air Force Base during my first year, where they do a lot of launches out of Cape Canaveral, got to see a lot of rockets. I mean, come on, Colin, rockets, <laughs> yeah, space. It's it's pretty cool stuff. So yeah, really looking forward to to hearing what Matt has to say.
1: Yeah, and th- that's all just to show, uh, as our audience listens to both CJ's interview and now Matt's interview that within a single career field, whether it's space operations or something else elsewhere in the Air Force, no two careers are going to be identical, even in the same AFSC. So with that, we'll turn it over to Captain Matthew Folks. Today I am joined by Matthew Folks.
3: Hey, thanks for having me.
1: Do, do you like Matthew or do you
3: like Matt? Uh, let's go with Matt. That'll be, that'll be less formal.
1: Okay. Less like your mother being angry and interviewing you at the same time.
3: Yeah, that and also, you know, I'm not a I'm a I'm a nobody now. I'm not even in the military, so I'm 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 just Matt.
1: Oh, okay. Well, nobody Matt, let's investigate that a little bit. Apparently at some point you were somebody, so why don't you uh take us through your background and give us a little bit of an idea of uh, what your experience has been with the Air Force as you came into it, what you did for it, and then we'll explore uh, later on uh, why you are a nobody now.
3: Yeah, sure. I uh, So I, I grew up, I mean, I'm not going to tell my whole life story, but I grew up the youngest of five kids in uh, southwestern Virginia, and then in high school moved to Kentucky. But when I was looking at going to college, neither one of my parents had money, but the, my parents had both been in the Air Force. They met In a bowling alley in San Angelo, Texas while they were stationed out there. My brother at the time that I was getting ready to go to college, he was on active duty. He was enlisted. He since then went to OTS, but he said, you know what? You should check out ROTC. And uh, I was going to BYU and I was like, well, I don't know if I can, I was planning on going on a mission for my church. And he said, I'm pretty sure that's something that they've uh, probably dealt with once or twice before. So I mean, it was kind of a family thing, kind of a a money thing, kind of a, you know, I want to serve my country thing. I mean, really, it's pretty similar for most people. But I went to BYU. I started out without a scholarship. But I want to say either my second or third semester, I applied and I received a scholarship. So BYU ROTC guy. And I don't know if now is a good time to explain how I ended up in Space Command. Is that a... Sure. Is an okay, time to do that. Yeah. Okay. So, in some ways, I love this story because at the time I was like, how can this possibly happen? And then after serving seven years on active duty, I look back and I'm like, this is exactly what somebody should expect to happen at some point in their career. Uh, just happened for me early on. Um, you no, know, at the time, we filled out our dream sheets of all these career fields we wanted to do at some point our junior year. And I remember we would go into the administrative office occasionally as cadets and we'd say hey Are we gonna do this soon? And they would say something very You know typical like well, we'll let you know when it's time or hurry (laughs) up and wait or whatever they would say And then it's funny. It was during the week of finals and all of us who were graduating in 2009 got this frantic phone call from the secretary saying hey, can you be in the office in the next, it was like 30 minutes or something. Half of the people were gone already. And, uh, and I went in and this is exactly what they said. You know, it was inevitable. It was unavoidable. The bad news is your dream sheets did not get submitted. <laughs> oh, no. The air force already chose your career, but the good news is, you can still put in for the place you want to go. So maybe you're not doing the job you thought you wanted to do, but maybe you can do it in a place that's warm like Texas or California. And of course, as a junior, this is devastating. We're like, I can't believe this is happening. And some people are like, well, heads should roll and people should lose their careers over this. But honestly, like stuff like this happens all the time. There was an inspection, I want to say that that semester. And so that's the thing that they were concerned about and they totally forgot. To submit the dream sheets. It was a crazy time. Anyway, I sometimes think about the, the Garth Brooks song, Unanswered Prayers. And the jobs that I thought I wanted, I don't think I would have been as happy as I ended up in the job that wasn't even on my radar at all. And so anyway, that's maybe that's longer than I should have spent on that. But that stuff happens all the time. And so I was put in Space Command I was sent to Vandenberg Air Force Base, which is in Santa Barbara County, California. And I've also learned that military members and their spouses can find a way to complain about any base anywhere on the planet. But I mean, honestly, I was an hour north of Santa Barbara. Every day of my life, I could wear a hoodie and shorts and flip-flops and be appropriately dressed for the weather. It was foggy, but I'm okay with that. It was awesome. So I went out there for training. I I was told that I was going to go space and missiles, which was one career field at the time. I'd consigned myself to the fate of being sent to Minot, North Dakota, where many of BYU grads started their career. But then my wife got pregnant with our first child. And when you're filling out your base of preference stuff, you can put stuff in the like special considerations box and they try and make you feel guilty. Like it's some sort of bad thing to do that. But in the box I wrote, you know, my wife is pregnant. And if I were to go missiles, then she would be due right at about the time I would be due for graduation. And uh, that would be hard for moving and everything. And for continuity of care, if I could stay here, and work in this space job in the middle of California, that would be great. And so that's what the Air Force did. And it was awesome. I worked launching rockets from the West Coast, which does mostly spy satellites and weather satellites, missile tests, the X-37 super secret space plane lands or landed at the time at Vandenberg. I worked on really, Cool things with interesting people. I worked a joint project with the israelis. I got to go tdy to cape canaveral I want to say three times And went to vandenberg air force base knowing nothing about space and I I just grew to love it It's uh, it's something I still like to follow the news with uh, the new space force my son's valentine's box. We made a giant rocket And so, you know, I was able to like plaster NASA on the side and stuff. So great experience. I mean, obviously not everything is great every day. I don't want anybody to think that. But looking back, I've got no regrets.
1: Great. Yeah. Uh, So a couple of things that I want to revisit. Uh, First of all, your parents met in a bowling alley. Can you get more Air Force than that?
3: I know, right? No, really, my great story. But my dad, he grew up in rural Virginia and... He joined the Air Force. He was a calm guy. And he was sent out to Goodfellow Air Force Base for an exercise or something. Um, my mom was at Goodfellow because that's where Intel School is. And so she was at Goodfellow. I'm honestly not even sure why now looking back. So she was a Russian linguist, which is funny because when I'm a kid, I didn't even know that. You know, like my mom spied on the Russians from Germany, which is kind of crazy, right? But um yeah, they met at the uh, bowling alley. I think it was actually on the base.
1: That's awesome. So family business, as you said, your both parents enlisted. Your brother was enlisted. What did he do uh, as an enlisted airman?
3: You know, it, it's funny. I don't want to make anybody think like, oh, the Air Force screws everything up. But I just, you know, stuff happens, right? So my brother, he enlisted with the idea that he was going to be I know it was linguist, and it was either going to be Hebrew or Chinese, which I know those are very different. But (laughs) it was one of those things. He goes out to Monterey. He's in training, and he has an issue with his eyes. So he needs to get, like, glasses or surgery or something. He gets behind in class, and they decide, you know what? Now we're just going to reclass you. So they reclassed him, and then he was... I can't remember the name of the career field. It's like passenger transport or something, but literally his first job was like sucking poop out of passenger planes. And then, he, you know, and then he moves on and he's in charge of like the passenger manifest for planes and stuff. His career could take a whole episode. It's, it's, and a lot of people do this and I'm sure you're su- certainly familiar with this. So he was active duty enlisted. He separated, went to school, then applied again, went to OTS, went on active duty, And then the Air Force was downsizing and he decided to take the bonus and he left and Then he was in the private sector for a couple of years and he was like I kind of hate this So he went uh, He got a reserve gig that got him X number of years and then he cross-trained to another reserve gig so that he could be uh, an AGR and now he's you know lieutenant colonel with almost 20 years in and he goes to I don't know, kind of a schnazzy version of Air War College, something in D.C. He starts that in a few months. So I don't know. It's funny how like your career takes all kinds of twists and turns. But at the time when he was advising me, he wasn't an officer yet. And he's like, that sounds like a pretty good gig. You should check out this ROTC thing.
1: Yeah. So do you know what AFSC your brother has now?
3: So now he is an Intel officer.
1: Okay, so he's probably at National War College.
3: I think that's where he's going to end up going. Yes. But again, as as a reservist, you end up in kind of weird gigs. He was on a joint base in Seal Beach, California, which is awesome, by the way. And he was managing a program that oversaw mostly enlisted military members from other services who did their drill weekends there. So it's, I don't know, just you end up in things that you never would have anticipated.
1: Yeah. And part of the reason why I wanted to explore that with your family is just, it it shows the many different ways that the air force can happen for a person that there's no one direct route that we all have to follow, but things can, as we'll learn as we tug on the thread of your career a little bit more, things can Go all sorts of different directions, and you never know what's going to happen, and you kind of just have to roll with it, you know.
3: Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, not to drag this on, but I had uh, so I guess a little bit foreshadowing. I was in law school, and while I was there, a friend of mine was working in uh, in Massachusetts. They have a homeless court, so specifically for people who have run-ins the law and they're homeless. But she had a client who wanted to join the Air Force, which sounds kind of interesting, but basically. It was kind of like goodwill hunting, like this kid, he was kind of on the streets, but he's in Cambridge, Massachusetts, so he kept going to lectures at MIT, which uh, apparently you can't do when you're not a student, and so he got some trespassing charges, and so I worked with my friend and this client to get some charges dropped so that he could enlist in the Air Force, and initially, I mean, his ASVAB scores were off the charts, like straight 99s, and... uh, he was. they told him he was going to do computer programming or he was going to be a linguist. And then probably what happened is they looked at his background and he was born in a foreign country. His parents were from another foreign country and one that's not particularly close with the United States. I'll just say that. And uh, I think somebody decided it would take forever for him to get a security clearance. So now he's going to be a jet engine mechanic, but he's at basic training and he's doing well and when he talked to me about it he was kind of devastated but i was like look man this happens all the time you're joining to serve and you have to be okay with there's a chance that that's going to be at a capacity that you had never anticipated
1: uh huh that is super fascinating again you think you're joining to do one thing but then the air force is going to need you to do something completely different and like you said you have to be okay with that. You you join to serve, you join not to fulfill your own dreams and wishes, but the needs of the Air Force and the people that you protect.
3: Absolutely. I had a friend of mine from law school, he was an army guy. And we talked about this all the time, because we have, you know, there, there are people who, especially in law school, who said, like, you know, tell me about the military. I think I want to join and go to this base or do this job or whatever the thing is. And the thing that we would tell them is we're like, look, I think it's great that you want to serve, but don't do it unless you're comfortable with signing on the dotted line and then having them tell you, you know what? We need you to suck poop out of planes for the next three years. Or we need you to go to Arkansas or Iowa or a place that you never would have even thought had a military base you have to be okay with that and that's I mean that's part of serving
1: yeah awesome well we're going to get more into your career a little bit but let's talk about your time in ROTC so first of all what was it that you studied in college
3: I was a communications major with an emphasis in advertising
1: awesome and they're like we need this guy in space command
3: it's (laughs) <laughs> and it's you know it's funny the um, I- exactly at the time your major didn't matter at all for whether or not you ended up in space command and for years they've tried to change that the, the leaders uh, now space force well we want to have a more technically minded career field or you know whatever they want to say but it's uh, sometimes it's hard to get enough people that meet that criteria at the time it didn't matter at all so it was okay well communications major let's talk about orbits
1: <laughs> you're like what <laughs> yeah now did you have any sort of like physics or engineering classes like, did you start out in communications or were you oh one of those God. that
3: I, I, I started out day one in communications i had zero background in anything stem I went to school thinking I wanted to be a journalism major and then maybe go into public affairs.
1: But you didn't get to put that on your preference list.
3: Yeah, I didn't. So I was I was a space guy and I looked into it. I was like, you know, this doesn't sound so bad. So uh, and it it wasn't. It was great. But I. Yeah, it's funny. And you know what? Even if somebody has a STEM degree, I guess the idea is that shows that there's an aptitude for things, science, whatever that's worth, which I don't think is a ton, but. I remember when they first implemented that requirement, I was an instructor and my first group of students, I probably out of 24 students had six biology majors. And let me just tell you, biology majors also know nothing about space or orbits or like the (laughs) physics that go into rocket launches or satellite motion. They don't know any more about the electromagnetic spectrum than a communications major. So it's kind of, Funny that you know, STEM just ends up being a buzzword sometimes. Sure, absolutely.
1: So you studied communications at at BYU. Did you join ROTC from the very beginning or did you do a year of college and then join later?
3: So I joined right away. I and it's funny because you don't know how it works unless you have a sibling or something who has done it. So I just walked into the ROTC building and I was like, hi, I start classes on Monday how do I join ROTC? And they just tell you what classes to sign up for. So I I was in ROTC from the beginning. I did some extracurricular stuff like Honor Guard, but I wasn't on scholarship until it was either my second or third semester.
1: Okay, great. And what was your experience in ROTC like?
3: It was good. You know, it's funny. it, It feels like it was forever ago now. It's always funny looking back. Like one thing that I think about now is when I was in ROTC, I thought it was normal to work in the same building and closely with a full colonel because BYU ROTC has a full colonel. And so you kind of get used to that. And then you get on active duty and find out that the colonel is like, that's your boss's boss's boss. Like you don't talk to him on a regular basis and you probably don't want to. (laughs) And then on the other end of the spectrum in ROTC, you're mostly interacting with captains, and those are the ones who are yelling at you. So they're scared of the captains, and then the colonel is kind of the nice guy. And when you're on active duty, like everybody's a captain, and you don't see the colonel very often, and you try to avoid that as much as you can. So it's kind of um, a weird experience, but it was good. I I did, like I said, I did some extracurricular work. I was in the honor guard, and it was just a, a good opportunity to have a group of people that you spend a lot of time with doing like-minded things, especially in a school that has, you know, 30,000 undergrads. It's nice to have people that you see on a regular basis and you can become friends with and interact with.
1: All right. Uh, and, and then you said you graduated in 2009? Yes. Okay. And so um, at what point did you find out whether you're going to do the space thing or the missiles thing?
3: So that wasn't until after I'd graduated, after I'd commissioned, after I'd gone to California and reported to Vandenberg Air Force Base uh, at the at, now it's different, but at the time you just knew you were going space or missiles and everybody would go through the same baseline course before it split off. And then there would be it was kind of like assignment drop night for pilots, but there were a lot more tiers involved because at the end of the day if you go to pilot training, you're still going to be flying an aircraft, but <laughs> At the time space and missiles were together, you're in a room of all your peers, you've become friends, and we'll say that there are 80 of you, and you know that you know how many slots there are for space. So only 15 or 20 of you are going to go do something that you probably asked to do. And people would cry. There was one woman in my class that I went to Space 100 with, and she thought for sure she was going to get the thing that she wanted. I mean, it's funny that some of the instructors would even give bogus advice. They were like, you know what I would do? On my dream sheet, even if there were only three space jobs, I would just write the same thing again and again, again, as though that would help. Anyway, she was sent to Minot, North Dakota, and she cried. And I shouldn't laugh about it, but it's just, it was a different time. So fortunately, that doesn't happen anymore, I guess.
1: Well, not only going to, to Minot, but that meant that she was doing the missile side of things as well. So
3: Right, which it's funny. I have friends who are in missiles. There are a lot of BYU grads who are in missiles and they're perfectly happy with it. The schedule is works out in such a way that they are able to work on education and spend enough time with the family. And also the, the, the bases, especially if you're into the outdoors and things, there's a lot of benefits to it. But I remember when I was in training in this combined Space 100 course, we had a lot of academy grads who had either decided they didn't want to be pilots after they went to pilot training or didn't pass pilot training. So they were reclassified, but they told me these stories about how these pilot commanders of the training squadrons would meet with them. And they would say, if you drop out of this, we're going to send you to missiles. And like that, was, (laughs) which is, I don't know. It's, it's totally ridiculous.
1: (laughs) Okay. So you finished Space 100. Like you said, you you got to stay there at Vandenberg uh, doing the space launch
3: stuff. What was that like? It was like a lot of jobs. I feel like 90% of your time was dedicated to training to do the thing that you're supposed to do and doing adjacent administrative work that's related to the thing you're supposed to do. And then about 10% of the time, like we we had about one launch per month. So most of the time you're spending preparing for that launch. And then, you know, one day a month, it's exciting because you're actually launching a rocket, which is super fun. So it was an interesting job. Essentially, if you've ever watched the movie Apollo 13 or something and they have that big control room, I sat in that big control room and... We have mission requirements that say, you have to have this many operational radars and that many telemetry antennas. Contractors would actually work at those sites and they would report to me sitting in that mission control room. And my job was to track and see, okay, if we have this radar, you know, at this site 20 miles away that goes down, are we meeting our mission requirements? And if we weren't, I could hold the countdown clock. You would report that information up to the wing commander. So you were kind of quasi supervising the contractors. It was safety related. It was really an interesting job. I I liked it a lot.
1: Okay. Let's talk about that a little bit. First of all, why is the Air Force in the business of
3: launching things into space? It's a great question. Essentially, the government requires the contractors who actually build and own and launch the rockets to launch them from certain sites where we have radar, we can track it, where we have telemetry antennas that can receive the GPS data. And it's also a strange unknown job that military members perform where if the rocket goes off course, we blow it up because that could harm a civilian population if the rocket crashes. And so the contractors are doing the building of the rocket, the launching of the rocket, the building of the satellites themselves. Oftentimes the military is a customer of them. We're essentially purchasing a satellite and asking them to put it in space. But the military members and government contractors oversee the safety aspect of that to make sure that uh, nothing goes wrong. It also, in, in a way it makes sense because it doesn't make sense for every contractor to own all of the infrastructure launch a rocket so the government buys it it builds it it maintains it and it staffs it and then the contractors who actually build and launch these rockets they essentially pay for the range time from the government
1: okay what you're describing sounds like it would be done by nasa but apparently that's not the case it's being done by the air force not nasa
3: correct so we don't have a lot of nasa missions on the west coast anyway on the east coast it's interesting they NASA has for especially manned space flight, but they have their own control center where they're monitoring for the satellites themselves generally or the success of the vehicle and is it transmitting like it's supposed to. The Air Force's piece of that puzzle is just the safety part. Like we, the people who work in the space lift squadrons or the range operation squadrons, like I did. Uh, we're not really monitoring the satellite itself. We're monitoring the rocket to make sure it doesn't go off course. So it's more of a kind of a limited scope mission. Once the rocket is not endangering anybody, whether that means it's going to land in the ocean or whether that means it's going to go up in space, it's like our mission's over and we did a great job.
1: Yeah. So once the rocket has completed its mission, it's delivered its payload, the parts and pieces are now back on earth, I guess. Your job is over. You, you don't, do anything more with the satellite the spacelift squadrons they're not involved in operating the satellite or anything like that
3: right and i misspoke a little bit i was in a range operation squadron the range is just that safety mission and then there are engineers and acquisitions members who work in space launch squadrons and they work with the contractors on the satellite part so They will continue to monitor the satellite and make sure that it's communicating and it's solar arrays are going out like it's supposed to. But our job, as soon as it hits space, we're good. We go home.
1: Okay. And all of these different aspects of managing the launch of the rocket, getting the satellite or whatever it is put into its orbit, then operating that satellite for the duration of its mission, all of this falls under the space operations officer mission.
3: correct? Correct. Yeah. And now it's going to be Space Force. I mean, the Air Force already provided, I want to say something like 80% of the United States military space capability. And uh, the other services did some of their own work, but now it's all consolidated under Space Force. And so I only worked the lift part of the mission, and then I worked in education. So I was doing the training, but a lot of other people, they're doing early missile warning, working at radar sites, or they are doing actual satellite operations, mostly out of Colorado.
1: Okay, very cool. So you mentioned that the Air Force often uh, is the customer for the, the actual launch of the vehicle in that the Air Force will buy the satellite and then it gets launched into space under Air Force supervision. And then the Air Force uses that satellite, right? But apparently, that's not always the case. So sometimes there will be other customers. Like, Who is the customer for Spacelift?
3: You know, at the time we had, we didn't have as many commercial customers, but there are a fair number of commercial customers. I mean, if DirecTV wants to launch a satellite, there's no DirecTV rocket, there's no DirecTV launch pad. And so they contract with either SpaceX or United Launch Alliance and they say, We have this satellite, we'd like to put it in space, and they will book a flight on a rocket. And then SpaceX or United Launch Alliance will then come to the United States government and say, What do you have available on your calendar for the range at Cape Canaveral? And they'll book out a block of days and they'll have to pay for all the tests and uh, the time that the contractors and the military members spend working their consoles and tracking the rocket and providing those services. So there are commercial providers that put things in space. On the East Coast, they do mostly communication satellites. On the West Coast, we launched a fair number of commercial imaging satellites that would you know, send pictures back from space. And we actually, probably more often on the West Coast than even an Air Force customer, the National Reconnaissance Office, they're responsible for all of our spy satellites. They would launch really, really big satellites into space with no details given to anybody other than this is NRO launch one sixty nine, and they gave it some special nickname, and uh, that's all we knew about it.
1: And that's all we're ever going to know about it. Good. <laughs> yeah,
3: I, I will say that it's it's funny. There are there is a network of amateur space buffs around the world and they do a great job of tracking satellites and when they appear in certain places and then in other places and from that data they're able to extrapolate we think it's in this sun synchronous orbit and it comes over these spots at this time of day and so it's it's always interesting to see how much they're actually able to pick up just tracking satellites around the world
1: just a bunch of communications majors
3: (laughs) that's that's right
1: The they're communication satellites. It makes sense, right?
3: Yeah, it's it's basically the same thing. <laughs>
1: totally. <laughs> awesome. From what it sounds like, no matter who you're dealing with, whether it's the NRO or DirecTV, there's a lot of money involved in order to to get the thing put into space and especially if it goes wrong, you know, that's a lot of money that is now sunk because the satellite has been destroyed, the, the rocket's been destroyed, all, all those things. So it, it makes sense that there would be a lot of emphasis placed on the safety and making sure that the launch goes off without a hitch.
3: Right. For example, the NRO could spend over a billion dollars with a B just on building the satellite. And so while the other costs are expensive, I mean, a lot of talk has gone to SpaceX and they're lowering the cost of access to space, which is really important. But the rocket itself many times is 10% of the cost of the satellite that is on top. And it's extremely important to spend the extra money and just make sure that the, the satellite's going to make it there. The other problem is all satellites are insured, but you can't go to Best Buy and buy a reconnaissance or a communication satellite. They're what? all I know, right? How about Radio Shack? <laughs> They're all custom built and they take years in a pipeline. I mean, they have to get all the equipment built and I mean it's it's a very specialized process. If if anybody listening has time to watch, there's a 1-hour documentary on I think it's called How to Build a Satellite or How to Launch a Satellite. It's uh it's about a launch that the European Space Agency does. It takes you through like the three year process from the start of the building of this commercial communication satellite to the time that it actually makes it into orbit. There's a lot of money at stake.
1: Yeah, we'll see if we can dig that show up and include it in the show notes because maybe there's a communication major out there that wants to go into Space Force and this will help them get an idea of what they can expect. Okay, good. Uh, so you did the, the space lift thing for how long?
3: So I was doing spacelift directly for three years. And then for one year, I went into our, uh, what's it called? OSS.
1: Operation Support Squadron OSS.
3: Yeah. And then the last three years, I spent in the uh, training squadron under Air Education and Training Command.
1: This whole time at Vandenberg?
3: Yes. And, and that kind of gets into the next part of my story, but it's most... Space assignments are somewhere between three and four years. And so typically I would have PCS'd by that point, but a few things make space unique. There aren't that many space bases, which is why Space Force is kind of weird that it exists. Like most people spend their careers going between Colorado and California or Colorado and Florida. And there's a lot of back and forth, but I could be in literally three different commands and stay on the same base and stay within my career field. So I had an opportunity to do that. And at the time, at least the personnel center had a hard time staffing the training squadron. So when I called and I said, Hey, if I wanted to stay here and go to the training squadron, could I do that? It was like, great done. Let me check this box and I'll set you up for your next assignment. So It doesn't work out for everybody. I will say that there's, I don't agree with it, but there's definitely many people in the Air Force think more assignments equals better or specifically more bases equals better. So if I knew that I was going to stay in for 30 years and really shoot for Colonel, I probably would have tried to move at the three or four year mark at the most. But my goal was a little bit different. I knew that I was interested in going to law school, and I also really liked teaching. So for me, there was no risk in going to the training squadron and doing a job that I love and setting myself up to go to law school.
1: Okay. Uh, Yeah. So we'll talk about uh, your specific career progression, how you got to where you are now. But if you could kind of briefly outline that career that you described in order to become that 06 in the space career field, what does that usually look like?
3: So within space, the common wisdom and what they tell you and what most people's careers end up looking like, space is one of a handful of career fields that is considered ops. And most people in the Air Force, when they think ops, they think pilots. And being in ops has its benefits like you literally get to go to the front of the line when you go to the uh when you go to the clinic or you need a flu shot or whatever but you're the person that's actually doing the thing so pilots obviously they have their they're sitting in the cockpit and they're flying the airplane in space as an officer you're not just supervising enlisted members who are performing a job but you're also performing the job you're doing the ops you're tracking missiles or you are moving the satellites in space or what have you. And so what they tell you is when you come in, you're going to do, I think right now it's probably three operational assignments. So you go to training at Vandenberg and then they will send you to your base. So you'll probably end up just because most of the jobs are there in Colorado. So you're in Colorado and you'll be assigned to work on GPS or to work on a missile warning system. And you'll do that job for probably three years. And then they will PCS you to another ops job. So you literally might go from Colorado Springs up to Boulder, Colorado. Some people just stay in the same house and commute. But you might end up going to Florida or California. There are radar sites at more random places also. But usually what happens is you will do two to three of those ops assignments in a row. You'll start out as the guy that's doing the thing. And then at some point, you'll end up being the woman who is supervising you know, the young lieutenants who are doing the thing. But after you've done two or three of those ops assignments, they'll probably send you to do staff work either at Vandenberg Air Force Base or again at Peterson Air Force Base in Colorado Springs. I mean, many people within the space career field, you, it's not uncommon to have two assignments back to back, definitely within the state, but you could be at three different bases in Colorado within an hour driving distance of one another and through all those assignments in theory
1: and you mentioned staff level work so there's obviously then going to be the opportunity for going to air force space command well which is now the space force or going to the pentagon and working space stuff there are there any opportunities for space officers uh, overseas
3: There are some, but they're very few and far between. Like you might end up being a liaison or of some sort, but I really don't have very many friends who spent time overseas unless they were doing a deployment somewhere in the Middle East. And I'm honestly not sure to what degree they say where they go now, but it's not a crazy place. And there are some space operations that can only be performed in theater. Uh, So I have friends who deployed and they were sitting in an ops center in uh, In like cutter and there's a ton of military members there and there's also like Red Lobster and malls It's a it's an interesting deployment. Not that it's like super fun uh, because it's still like a hundred thousand degrees outside, but it's It's a different deployment But as far as going overseas Not so much. It's really an interesting career field in that respect
1: Yeah, I I would like to say that my experience working with space officers was always deployed. Like you mentioned, in Qatar, we we had to support some space missions there. But then (laughs) the best one was while I was in Jordan, we had a new mission show up. Nobody knew they were coming. Typical Air Force kind of stuff. (laughs) And they show up and they're like, yeah, we're this space control such and such. We are super really highly classified. We can't tell you anything about us, but we need, you know, here's our list of requirements for security and we're like, "Wait, who are you?" <laughs> but by the end of the week, you know, they had their little compound with Multiple layers of T barriers and concertina wire and all of this stuff, uh, making it abundantly clear that you do not want to go near or in their little compound.
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, so I would say like 90% of space command jobs, you're not going to spend much time overseas. And then there are a few squadrons, and you know what those squadrons are going in that deploy on a very frequent basis. And I don't know if that's like, Six months off, six months on deployment, one year off or whatever it is right now. But most of the jobs are done from the United States, done from op centers here. And then a few squadrons, if you want to do the cool, super secret green door assignments is what they call them. um, You know, usually what squadrons, even if you don't know what job they do, you know what squadrons you're more likely to deploy from.
1: Yeah. Okay. good. So that that's for somebody that is interested in making you know, space operations—a career. They're going to move from Vandenberg to Colorado. Maybe stay in Colorado for a little bit. Maybe do some staff work. If they want to deploy, there's an opportunity for that. But that's what their a career is likely going to look like.
3: Right. If you want to be stationed in Germany or England or Italy, it's not going to happen as frequently as in other jobs.
1: Okay. But uh, let's get back to you and your career progression you did the spacelift thing for about three years and then you called up your assignments officer and said hey i want to be an instructor and they're like done
3: yeah it was way easier than i thought it, it kind of scared me actually i was like did i make a huge mistake was this a- <laughs>
1: <laughs> because nothing in the air force is this easy right
3: it's, right like it's it's funny people they try to tell you not to call them and i'm sure that those guys probably in many ways don't want to be called but when they get a call from someone asking, can you send me to a place where you have a hard time keeping it filled with people who want to be there? They're like, this is the greatest day of my life. I don't have to worry about PCSing you. I don't have to worry about like getting movers for your family, like it's a done deal. So it was, it was way easier than I thought it might be.
1: Yeah, so if you want things to be, if you want to remove the friction from your life, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Call up your assignments officer and say, what is the tough job that you want
3: to fill? And I'll fill oh, it. man, it, it would be super if people talk about like, I don't know where I'm going to go. I don't have orders yet. But if you want to know you want certainty, you just do that and it's done. Right?
1: OK, so you did that and uh, you ended up doing instruction. Tell us about that.
3: Dude, it was the best job I've ever had. It was super fun. The course changed while I was there. And that was probably the biggest hassle just because it seems like every year you get new way high level leadership, some general somewhere who says like, I want a more technical course or I want it to be longer like the pilot training, or I want more washouts. I want it to be harder so that people fail. Like, I don't, just bizarre things, right? Like sometimes they would come up with arbitrary requests, like, You know, Saying you want it to be more technical, first of all, that's really vague. But also, sometimes it would be like, you know what? We have an 80-day course. I want it to be 180 days. And then it would be like, okay, well, I guess we'll find something to do for another 100 days. And so that happened while I was there, and that was frustrating. But as far as the job goes, really, I would say most of the time, we had something like 60 days of training crammed into 80 days and so (laughs) This sounds awful like because it's funny you go to like you hear stories about Intel school and Intel school You can't take anything home to study because it's all classified But at the time that I was there there was very little classified material. That's changing now I understand they're trying to add skiffs because somebody somewhere decided that's important, but um, when I was there we were teaching baseline orbital mechanics and types of rocket fuels and the mission areas and the acquisitions process. And it was a lot of material, but I loved it. It was fun. I always was teaching myself because I wanted to be able to answer my students questions. I felt like we had adequate time to teach. And really one of the things that I loved was the autonomy. So as an instructor in my position that I had 90% of the time, it was me and my students. And when it's you and your students, if, you don't have a problem standing up in front of a group of people and talking. It was, it was fun. I really did look forward to going to work. I still keep in touch with my students. I love seeing, you know, I have students now who are uh, captains, probably having some soon who are going to be pinning on major, and they're overseeing ops, and it's just fun to see where they are and stay in touch with everybody.
1: Yeah, especially as the Space Force comes online and then and that's the big topic of conversation. Fun to see how they're all getting involved or might get involved with that.
3: Right. I mean, I taught over definitely over a hundred students while I was there. I mean, I, I subbed for other classes as often as I could. Whenever we had to do a double class, I would always volunteer. Like I definitely one of the best jobs I've had, very fulfilling. I loved it.
1: Yeah. Is this Space 100 we're talking about or the, the introductory training for space officers? Is that what we're talking about?
3: Yes, and they give it a new name like every year. I'm honestly not sure what they're calling it right now. All the instructors still, for the most part, called it Space 100 because the, that's its function. At Again, they change it a lot. Oftentimes, something comes down and they say, we want it to be more operational or we want it to be technical. But really, at its core, you have a certain number of blocks of training, like 10 blocks of training. So you'll start out with like space history. And then from there you'll go to basic orbital mechanics. And then from there you'll have a space lift block and you'll have a block on the electromagnetic spectrum or you'll have a block on early missile warning systems. And by the end you have an overview of essentially every part of the career field, including acquisitions because that's an important part of our career field. And uh, you graduate, and then the follow-on training happens at the bases. So you don't get extensive training, for example, in an early missile warning system at Vandenberg Air Force Base. You would actually go to your radar site or your uh, satellite control facility, and you would get your training there.
1: Okay. And then is it set up so that all of the students that are in the class are taking all the same things at the same time? And, and so there's a very a definite start and stop date for each class, or is it more of like a rolling schedule?
3: So each class, like group of students, they have a definite start and stop date, but we might have five classes going on at any one time that overlap, uh, which is kind of fun. You know, it's like any Air Force training. When you have overlapping classes like that, you've really only been there for like eight weeks, but you're the old guy. You know, you've been there for a long time, and Oh, look at these new students coming in. They don't know anything, but it it was fun. It it was a fun environment. I I think it it was a great place to be. And how big are these classes? At the time, they were 12 students. I don't know if they've changed that uh, since then, but it's a good number. Any more than that, it's really hard to keep track of everything. Any smaller, sometimes it's too small, if you know what I mean.
1: Okay, so then 12 students per class, five classes going at at any given time, about 60 officers that are going through Space 100 at any given time.
3: Yeah, it depends on kind of the ebb and flow. I mean, right after graduation, they'll have huge groups coming from the academies and then less or so from ROTC. But yeah, as many as that many at one time and as few. Sometimes we might only have one class going, it just depends kind of how AFPC schedule is going.
1: Okay. And so the, the class size is dependent on what's going on uh, with the commissioning sources and what AFPC is as well as the Pentagon is trying to do as far as the end strength numbers for the space operations career field.
3: Right. So you do a pretty good job of keeping most classes right at twelve students. That being said, oh this is something I kind of wanted to mention earlier. So I was at in ROTC. And in my senior semester, within a month of graduation, assuming that I would graduate and then I would commission and then I would have a job. At some point, somebody told me, oh, yeah, that's not necessarily how that works. And so fortunately for me, I ended up commissioning and then actually starting my job within a few weeks. But I also know somebody who went missiles, who was working at Home Depot for over a year before his slot opened up for him to actually go to training somewhere. And so anyway, it it happens that way. So we have, a lot of times we have large classes of academy grads because they've just had a graduation cycle and then you'll have more ROTC students and then OTS is just kind of fit in wherever OTS students graduate. Right,
1: okay, well good. Anything else you wanna say about the instruction side
3: I just, I hope that people aren't afraid to do a training assignment. Like in some career fields, it's seen as like a stepping stone. And then in some career fields, people will tell you, oh, you don't want to do a training assignment. Or, oh, I think the biggest myth, oh, AETC is the worst, which is like the most broad statement you could possibly say. Don't get me wrong, like AETC, every command I'm sure has its problems or whatever. But like I said, 90% of the time when you're a line instructor, It's you doing your job and there's nobody looking over your shoulder. And I don't know if that's the case for most jobs in most career fields. So for me, I had a good time. If you think you'll like instructing, then it was awesome. I I wouldn't trade that time for anything. I I grew really close to my students, my fellow instructors. I learned a ton about my own career field and uh, I've got no regrets from doing it.
1: Yeah. And on that note, the Air Force is finally shifting in a direction where it's going to value instructor duty, whether it's like what you did uh, as a career field instructor at the schoolhouse or teaching PME at SOS or ACSC or doing OTS or Air Force ROTC instructor duty. The Air Force is now more officially going to give that, more consideration for promotion and other types of special opportunities where it hasn't done that in the past.
3: And and they should. I mean, because if they don't, then you're going to end up with the scrubs who don't want to teach being the teachers, which is, I, I can't think of a kind of a worse scenario. than.
1: Which is kind of the situation that you and I had. While we were at ROTC. Yeah. (laughs) Which is why your Form 53 didn't get submitted and (laughs) how you ended up in space to begin with. So maybe everything worked out the way it was supposed to.
3: That's right.
2: (laughs) All right. Well, Colin, thanks so much for setting up that interview with Matt. I really enjoyed it. Because rockets, right? Uh, Yes. Rockets in space. (laughs) (laughs) All the things. So I've been to a launch in person. And if you ever get that opportunity, you've got to take it. It's almost the spiritual experience. I was at the second to last shuttle launch. I was about six miles away. And the atmosphere can't contain the sound. It sounds like the entire earth is a broken speaker. Really great memories from that. So the whole time he's talking about space launch stuff, I'm just remembering that experience. But anyway, yeah, the thing that I really wanted to talk about is how he even landed in 13 Sierra in the first place. Uh, I'm having a hard time deciding how I would feel if someone had forgotten paperwork. You know, just a simple little thing like that. But I think you and I want to talk about this, about how he managed it and what we think our audience should do. Because guess what? newsflash stuff's going to happen right bad things will happen to you the air force will lose things life will happen and how you deal with that will play a central role in your life success but also your career success yeah
1: resiliency is a huge topic in the air force and across the the broader department of defense because exactly as you're saying reed things will get screwed up Someone's going to forget to submit your paperwork, such as your Form 53 career classification, while you're going through your session source. Or later on, maybe someone will forget to submit your PRF or your promotion recommendation form for you to meet a promotion board. I've personally seen that happen in two different circumstances. Or outside of the Air Force, but still within the military context household goods as you're PCSing from one location to another, your stuff's going to get lost or
3: broken.
2: Or stolen. Which is the worst.
1: (laughs) Yeah. The point is that things are going to get screwed up because while you are not necessarily in combat here, fog and friction and chance and chaos still get to play a role in everything that we're doing here.
2: Yeah, and what I really liked about Matt and his approach to all this is I, I think there's something we can all learn is there are a number of ways he could have reacted to this situation. Uh, but the path he took was, you know, I joined to serve. And so I'm going to have that perspective. Maybe I didn't get exactly what I wanted, but I was here to serve other people and to serve my country and to serve a broader mission, not do a thing. And so he gave it a try. And I really liked that message. And I hope our audience takes that away because my plan didn't go according to what I intended to do. I know Colin, you and I have talked multiple times. We all have this vision of what our life is going to be like, right? The best laid plans of mice and men. We don't know what's going to happen. And he took the attitude of, you know, I'm here to serve. I'm going to give this a shot. And he remarked a number of times how much he loved being a space operator. And what developmental opportunities, what life experiences could he have missed out on had he not had that attitude?
1: Yeah, for sure. Really appreciate, Matt, taking that stance and being a living, breathing example of what you can accomplish and the passion that you might find in something that you didn't know was an option to you. I mean, not only did he serve in space operations doing spacelift with gusto, but then he turned that around and became an instructor in it and started to develop the next generation of space operations officers where he could have taken the approach of, well, this is not what I wanted. So I'm just going to exist for the next four years you know, just bide my time until I can get out of the Air Force and then go be a lawyer.
2: Yeah. And I think that'll lead us to what we're going to be talking about in our next episode. And we'll kind of set that up for our audience. So we're going to kind of break this interview up into two big parts, but it's kind of part of a three-part series. So in the next episode, he talks about his transition out of active duty and into becoming a lawyer using the GI Bill. And Colin, that is such an important thing that we really want to bring that up and talk more about what the GI Bill is and how it works.
1: Yeah, for sure. So what the audience can expect is that next week we'll have an episode that talks about Matt's experience with the GI Bill. Some of the things that he learned from his experience transitioning out of the Air Force and into a law program using the GI Bill to do that. And then the following week, so two weeks from now, we will have a toolbox episode specific to the GI Bill program and the practical applications of how you can use it.
2: Yeah, absolutely. It's an incredible benefit and we hope to outline how that can impact your lives. Anything else before we wrap up this week, Colin? Nope, that's all I had. Awesome. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Commission Ed.
0: Thank you for listening to Commission Ed, the Air Force Officer Podcast. The views and opinions of the authors expressed herein do not state or reflect those of the government and shall not be used for advertising or product endorsement purposes. Mention of any specific commercial products, process, or service by trade name, trademark, manufacturer, or otherwise does not necessarily constitute nor imply its endorsement, recommendation, or favoring by the U.S. government. The mention of companies by name is solely for the purpose of discussion and should not be implied as endorsement.